This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Marks of a Child," was recorded at Spring Church on December twenty second, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter two, verse twenty nine to chapter three, verse three. Reads: If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practice practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What a blessing it is to be in this season to remind ourselves of just how wondrous the coming of our Savior is, and、uh, just seeing those children remind me of that. Speaking of children,、um, before、uh, my wife and I had our last son, Jack, I would take our three young daughters to different places, whether it's Costco or grocery stores, the park. And it was when our oldest daughter was four, and our second was two, and then we had a, had a we had an infant baby girl. And so, without fail, whenever I go to these places, someone would say, "Oh, they look just like you." And I don't know what you think about that comment, but I had three girls with me. I really didn't want a female version of me roaming the streets. <laughs> I don't know today if you were to say to my daughters, "Wow, you look just like your dad." I don't know if they would take that as a compliment. But at the same time, I do take that as a blessing, because the fact that they physically look like me are a reminder that they are from me, or at least part of me, that they have my DNA. And there are internal hardwired marks that are in each one of my children that says that they are my children. And John tells us in these two verses that、um, that really set the stage for some of the most reassuring passages of the Bible that tell us that we are God's children when we bear two very distinct birthmarks. You might say, and they remind us that we are His. The first, the first birthmark, is righteousness, according to chapter two, verse twenty-nine, and the second is love, according to chapter three, verse one. Next week we'll talk about verses two and three of this passage, but we'll focus more on these two verses and these two marks. And I hope to show you why these two marks, in particular, are very significant for us this Christmas Sunday. So the first mark is righteousness, and we see this in verse twenty-nine of chapter two. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Righteousness is one of the essential characteristics of God. John describes his righteousness a little differently in chapter one, verse five, when he says, "In him, there is no darkness at all." In other words, there is no moral defect. There's nothing about God that makes you think I don't get the fact that God is good or 
or um, morally right. And so when we look at verse 29, God says that if we are his children, we too must bear this same character trait, this sense of righteousness. So we need to look then again, because we did this before, but we'll look a little differently as to what we have to consider about righteousness and what we can infer from a text like this. First is that practicing God's righteousness perfectly is impossible. We have to start there. What does this righteousness look like? We spend a whole sermon series uh, a number of months ago on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to really understand God's perfect moral righteousness, just go to Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, read that and ask yourself, can I live up to these standards? Most of us will say, no, I can't. Because what Jesus talks about in terms of righteousness is that it's not merely just actions. It's not do not commit adultery or do not murder. It's do not have an angry heart because if you do, then you're committing murder. Do not have a lustful heart because if you do, then you're committing adultery. He tells us not merely just to love our neighbor, but he says love our enemies. He tells us not merely to tithe, but he says everything you have is mine already. So you have to be willing to surrender it all. And the list goes on and on when it comes to understanding righteousness from Jesus' perspective in Matthew. When you hear that list, you have to think, this is impossible. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that is an impossible standard of righteousness. So practicing God's righteousness perfectly is impossible. First, recognize that. Second is righteous people know that practicing righteousness perfectly is impossible. It might seem obvious, that statement, but it actually isn't. Because the problem lies in the fact that we tend to think that we can practice righteousness like this, that it is possible. And so we spend so much of our lives trying to do so through our hearts and actions and when we succeed, sometimes we feel good about ourselves. But of course, when we fail, which we will, we feel terrible about ourselves. When we succeed in practicing righteousness, sometimes we also uphold that standard to everybody else and say, well, I did this and you're not living morally like I am, so therefore you're not righteous like me. That's this idea of thinking I can practice righteousness rightly. At the same time, when we falter and fail, the last thing we want is someone else to come into our hearts and to our lives and say, hey, I noticed this about you, and I, I, think I really think you're struggling with this, and that's when we become defensive. Our walls go up and we say, you don't understand what I'm going through. Just leave me alone. So it is this real double standard of thinking that when we practice righteousness perfectly, occasionally, that somehow that leads us to think we're actually better than we really are. For example, even from a, a Christian's perspective, this is truly an incredible danger for us. So you can be attending prayer meetings, be faithfully praying, and yet there's always this creeping thought in your mind that thinks, well, if I'm praying this long, then God must show me equal amounts of favor. 
or if people aren't at this prayer meeting, then maybe they're not doing so well. And so therefore, and my heart starts condemning them. Maybe you're going to be serving on December 25th, giving up essentially a family day at the City Impact. What a wonderful expression of God's grace. But it is danger, dangerous for the Christian to go into that type of context and think, wow, because I'm doing this, I'm special. Or because someone else isn't here, they're really, something's wrong with them. It's the nature of who we are is that we take righteousness, we apply it to ourselves, think of ourselves either better or worse based on an action rather than on the heart, which Jesus is going deep into in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And we take that and we nullify everything about it because these are supposed to be expressions of a heart change, not the actual work of it all. And that's why morality and religion does not equal righteousness. That's not what John is talking about, nor Jesus, when we hear and speak of righteousness. What defines righteousness is not my actions, but it's a heart that is rightly geared and pointed towards God and produces actions based on a heart change. And that's the whole point on the Sermon on the Mount. That is to say that there are religious people and irreligious people, churchgoers and never churchgoers, who can look really good, nice, and moral. In fact, I know some of you in your workplace, you meet somebody and you say, this person is exactly like a Christian. They must be Christian. And think about why you think they're a Christian. You don't know. You, you haven't talked to them. But you, maybe you know someone. And the reason why you think they're a Christian is because they're nice. They hold the door open for you. They're very polite. They're very clean cut. And the assumption is they must be a Christian. That's sort of the way that we think of righteousness. Righteousness is an, uh, an external picture of a person based on saying thank you and please, someone who is chivalrous, someone who does good deeds. But that's not righteousness. Smiling a, a lot is not righteousness. Righteous people also can practice righteousness because they are God's children. You see, righteousness is a mark of a child because only God's children can truly practice righteousness. Righteousness is not an action. I have to say it again and again. It is a mark. It is God's mark. And if you are in Christ, you have God's, shall I say, spiritual DNA inside you. And just as a biological child has biological DNA so too, if you are God's child through Christ and his blood shed for you, you have God's DNA. And according to John, you're able to practice righteousness because he is righteous. Peter says the same thing in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. to 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What he's essentially saying is that there is something of God divinely that is inside you. That is that 
spiritual godly DNA. And that is transmitted to you, not based on your own efforts and works, but solely on what God has done and what he is objectively doing in your life that is given to you. It's a trait. This means that you practice righteousness all the time, maybe without even realizing it. Now, here's the big question that I know most of you are wondering. How do I, how do I do that? What does that look like? How do I do the impossible when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Here it, here it goes. It says, our righteous works are righteous because of Christ. Look at verse 29 again. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Notice it is not if you know that your deeds are righteous. John could have said that if you know your deeds are righteous. If it were that, though, we would be doomed because we'd always be trying to question, okay, is this a righteous deed or is that a righteous deed? It's the misery of the religious moral life. The the religious moral person always tries to determine the righteousness, the morality of their deeds based on what seems like a, a picture of following God. And so that comes with performing acts. I mean, it really is truly a a spiritual Boy Scout or a spiritual Girl Scout mentality of thinking we get awards and merit badges based on our deeds. In that sense, we're trying to measure up to righteous deeds, and it always falters because we feel so good when we succeed and we feel so frustrated when we fail, and it both happen all the time. And when we fail, boy, we come crumbling into despair. You might rejoice over the hundred times that you have not lusted. But what happens at the hundred first time? If you've ever fallen in that way, you know that it all comes crashing down. Then, of course, we struggle so much to show mercy and grace to other people. Why? Because internally there is this idea that I am good enough. I've worked hard enough. We become so blind to our own self-centeredness. You see, when we try hard to be righteous and try to know our own righteousness, we can never be righteous. And it's this self-defeating cycle. But again, look at the key. If you know that he is righteous, that's the key. If you know that he is righteous, not you are righteous, that he is righteous. Or as John says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you see what John is saying in light of the Sermon on the Mount? He's one of Jesus' disciples. He heard the Sermon on the Mount. He also struggled with this idea of, I don't think I could uphold those standards. To be righteous means that you must keep the law in heart and deed at all times. That's not not possible by our own strength. Because that's who God is. Your Father, your Heavenly Father. If you are in Christ, He's your Heavenly Father. And He demands that type of righteousness because He cannot be in coexistence with someone who is unrighteous because He's holy. So, what is our hope then? John says in chapter 2, verse 1, that it's Jesus Christ who is our advocate, who is the righteous one. He's the righteous one. 
So when you fail and you will, according to John in John chapter 2 verse 1, he does the work of actually being the righteousness for you. He obeyed God perfectly, righteously, so that when you do falter and fail, it is his righteousness that stands before God and speaks a better word, as Hebrews says. It stands before the Father and says that your righteousness is solely built not on your own works, but on Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's how God judges you on that last day, is not simply by your own works, but by the works of Christ, his own perfect son. And this is how you can tell you're born of him. Christians practice righteousness, so our deeds are never out of our own, own power to try to be righteous. But it's an outflow of believing that it is Christ who is righteousness, who is righteous in us. We know we can never be righteous enough, never morally righteous enough. And to even try on its own, by our own strength and power, we know it falls short. We know we need Christ over and over again. It's a regular occurrence for our own souls. But the Christian in Christ, who is God's child, God's son, God's daughter, strives on the basis of Christ's righteousness. We've talked about this before many times. There's a, a derivative nature to faith. That is to say that I don't just simply try to love my enemy based on my strength, their willingness to come halfway, my willingness to come halfway. It's, I remember that I was once an enemy of God. I am no better off than the person who is against me. And from that always is the impetus by which I strive to love an enemy. Or the reason I am able to surrender or we're able to surrender all that we have is because we know that God has done that by surrendering his own son for us. And that regular, ongoing occurrence of the derivative nature of my actions based solely on what Christ has done and what God has done for me is the motivation that keeps me pressing on, keeps me going forward. In Christ, we refuse to not only commit adultery, we refuse to lust. But we don't fight that by trying to will ourselves not to. We remember that Christ bore that on a cross for me. And so I don't want to just simply allow myself to go through that because I feel as though I have the entitlement or I'm going to surrender myself to my own fleshly desires. Anxiety, something we fight ongoing. But to fight it by trying to just will ourselves or to work out circumstances in our lives to make it less anxious for us, we all know how that turns out. It never works. But instead, I go back to the idea that, well, if God has mapped out and planned out and used every single part of not just my life, but world history to save someone like me, if God who is a God who for a 100,000 years is but a blink of an eye. And to think of all the different rulers that have gone, all the dictators and tyrants of history, and to think that for God, when he sees them, he sees them but a blink, then surely when God says that I will never leave you nor forsake you, you're, you're in the, uh, the palm of my hands, I don't have to doubt that God is... He's not there with me. He's not caring for me. 
That drives away anxiety. It's the idea of the more I know of who God is, the more I'm able to deal with even the intricacies of the challenges of life. And so that helps me to surrender everything to him. The second mark is the mark of love. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This mark, it's not contradictory to righteousness. Though, too often people think it is contradictory, that God's righteousness, it sounds so fierce, so strong. And yet when we think about love, we have this opposite feel to it. It seems soft, gentle. But to understand God's righteousness rightly is also to know how to love rightly. And that you cannot love rightly without knowing righteousness fully. A few thoughts about love and from this verse. First is that this love is given to us. We are not born with this love. We do not conjure it up. The Father has given it to us. We can't buy it. We can't will it. What makes this love different from any other love is that this love reflects not only God's love, but God himself. In chapter 4, verse 8, we're going to see that John says that God is love. He is the very essence of love. So when we love in this way, we show the world and ourselves that we are his children. Just as your children, if you have biological children, have your nose or your eyes and your hair, in that same way, we reflect God's image when we love others. And it shows us and the world that we truly are his sons and daughters. Because what we see in chapter 3, verse 1 is, the Father has given to us this love. So it is a given love. It's not something you work yourself up to or you read the Bible a lot and you get this love. It's God just gives it to you. That's a mark of a child. The second thing is that this love is extraordinary. Not ordinary, but extraordinary. You don't see this from the ESV, English Standard Version, but you actually see it from the King James Version because the word see is literally the word behold. And if you have a King James Version, it's one of the few versions that actually literally translates the word idu, which is behold. It's a word of astonishment. And I think it's rightly it should be behold. It's meant to be mesmerizing, this word, this phrase. Because the point of John is that love is not Ordinary. It's not see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's behold. This is so odd. This is so astounding. What kind of love the Father has given to us. This love is so different. In fact, John says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It does not know this type of love. It's, it's so extraordinary out of this world like a meteor shower or a solar eclipse. It's something that has a surprising element to this love. Why? Because the world's love is very ordinary. And ordinary love has a quid pro quo element to it. It's always, you love me this way, I'll love you back. If you give me this gift for Christmas, I have to equal that gift. If 
if you get married and you get this Christmas, um, this wedding gift, then you write down on the register and said, I got this. I need to pay this exactly back. See, that's sort of the love of the world. You love your family because they love you back. You love your friends who love you back. There's nothing surprising about that. That's how everyone in this world loves. But what is surprising is when someone shows you love and kindness when you don't deserve it at all. That's surprising love. You know why people love dogs so much? Because dogs will always be there for you. Even when you're mean, you're cranky, you haven't had a good day, dogs will always be there for you. In fact, a lot of people say, well, that's why I don't want to have people in my life. I just want my dog. Because people don't do that. People aren't always nice. People will leave you when you hurt them. They will be great to you when you're great to them, but they won't be there when you disappoint them. And in this world, you will disappoint people and they will disappoint you. It is just a true maxim of life. And so what is the natural response when someone disappoints you enough? You cut them off. You get rid of them. You say, this is too hard. Good riddance. I have enough people I need to care for. That's all I need. And you move on. You decide you don't need them and you find the next person to love. So here's the big question is, what is that love? Well, that love, according to the Bible, is very ordinary. It's worldly. It's regular love. It's typical. You're not going to be shocked by that type of love. That type of love, when a mom loves a son or a daughter, you're not going... That is extraordinary love. I can't believe that's happening. When you see two siblings actually liking each other, maybe you might think that's extraordinary. But really, it, it isn't. It's very normal. It's normative. But the love that is extraordinary is a love for an enemy. Someone who doesn't treat you well. Someone who hurts you. Someone who lets you down. And the Bible is so regularly speaking about this extraordinary love when it comes to God and us. I could have come up with a hundred verses, but I'll just give one or two. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while, while, key word, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is extraordinary love. It's not when we got all cleaned up and when we started loving God, that's when God decided to love us. It's while we're in the midst of it all, in the muck. Micah beautifully describes this love in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I love this verse right here. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so this is the extraordinary love of God. And it is the extraordinary love of a child of God. It's the mark of a child. And if you right now have someone in your life that you find difficult to love because they have hurt you, 
They've let you down. They've disappointed you. They've, they've made it hard for you to love them. Don't give up. I'm not saying it happens in a moment. It does sometimes take time. But there's never a place for a Christian to say, I'm cutting you off forever and ever. You've hurt me one too many times. That's it. No more. You're done. I'm done with you. No, that's not what shows that we are a Christian. Christian always is open to love. So just like God who passes over transgression, according to Micah, we too are willing to pass over transgression. When people disappoint and hurt and malign us, we're willing to pass over their transgressions. We're not willing to hold on to anger forever, but instead anger lasts but a moment, but God's favor for a lifetime. We're compassionate, merciful, means that we want to reconcile. We're not so willing to give up. We strive to love when all in our hearts lash out. We want vengeance, but we entrust our lives to him. So what John says in chapter 3, verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And we need to have this type of extraordinary love. It's, it's a battle. It's not easy. But you know what this love is most magnified by? The cross. This is the cross's love. It's love that says, on that cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Not only is this love manifested at the cross, this love is perfectly manifested in the manger. And how is that to be the case? Well, think about who is the most the, the weakest person in all the world, it isn't the poor person or the disenfranchised. They are weak, but the weakest person in all the world is an infant, a newborn infant. I mean, a lot of you have either had, seen newborn infants. How powerful are they? Forget about the parent. I'm talking about that baby. Think about what a baby is. A baby cannot talk. A baby has no control over his bowels. A baby is vulnerable to every sickness, just a little sickness, and left untreated, they're probably going to die. And then add to that, there's this baby that is born who is utterly vulnerable physically, and then the parents are utterly vulnerable. So the parents are poor, they have no home, so they're, they're, they're shifted, and so they are, have this baby in a cold, maybe like this dank, smelly place for a birth. Why would God choose to come so humble and so utterly vulnerable in that he could have came as an adult? You know, if you were God and you were planning out all things, would you have decided, I'm going to send my son as a baby? Most of us would have thought, I'm going to send him as a man, you know, someone who's strong, who's powerfully built, who's wealthy. But God chose someone to be born, his son to be born in this way. And this little baby was swept in the, just sort of the, the swaths of history and time. 
And when you think about all that happened during Jesus' birth, there was a Roman emperor at the time. His name was Augustus Caesar. He is often thought of as one of the most powerful men who have ever lived. And what he decided to do was to hold a census. This census had the purpose of raising taxes because he wanted to really set up the tax system well so that he could gain enough money within the Roman Empire to rebuild that empire and to bring Rome into all of its glory and splendor and might. And so he would do that across the Roman Empire. And so he issued this decree to have every single person within the empire to go to their hometown so they can register to pay taxes. So Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth and they have to go travel by whatever means, walking, donkey, and probably Mary's eight to nine months pregnant, not a good time to be walking long distances. And so they go into this town called Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown. And in this place where Joseph resides, there's nowhere for them to stay. And so you can imagine, husbands, you are, your wife is about to give birth to a child. And there's nowhere to have this baby. And so you, you're trying to find this one place and there happens to be an innkeeper and there happens to be a, some place where animals reside. It's probably underground in a cave. And so the baby is born there. The reason why that had to take place is because God had a plan. He had prophesied a long time ago in Micah, hundreds of years ago, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. God would use a Roman emperor who thought he was the greatest king in all the world, in all the world's history. And like in a moment's notice, God would say, I'm going to use your very actions to fulfill my plans, to save a people. And everything about how God acts is to fulfill that plan, including his son to be born in the most vulnerable, despised, rejected way. Why? Because Jesus' life, his birth, his death, everything about Jesus from his, from the point that he was born to the point that he died to resurrection is in every way a perfect reflection of ourselves, of the very people he's saving. Someone who's vulnerable. There's no hope. There's no strength. Just like a little baby who can't control his own bowels. Whose sickness is so deep. There's no hope for this person. Jesus' whole life is all about the mirror reflection of where we are spiritually before God. And from the birth to the death of Christ to the resurrection. Everything about Jesus is about us. Christmas is not simply a time of giving gifts. Christmas is a time to remember that Jesus Christ, God the Son, became vulnerable, humbled, who was broken, rejected, to save a people who were exactly like that before God. And John, when he looks at this, he says, Behold, this love is astonishing. No one loves this way. But this is what our God has done on this day, in this season. 
We Christians love Christmas. But let us not love Christmas because of Christmas trees and eggnog and Santa Claus and gifts. Let us love Christmas because Jesus came vulnerable. God the Son. And we who are undeserving of this love have been given the greatest gift of all. This is not only the mark of a child of God, this is the mark of the Son of God to love those who are undeserving, vulnerable, humbled, broken, rebellious. This is the work of our, our Savior. So let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we thank you for this season that is but another visual reminder of how much you love us, the astonishing love of God that the world cannot understand nor fathom. And every time they see it, they just think we're either crazy or there's just no response. And we remember this season, the manger, the travel, the difficulties, because it shows us what you had to go through to save, as John Newton says, a wretch like us. You became a wretch to save a wretch. You became despised, Lord Jesus, to save the despised. You were broken in your body to save those of us who are broken in our spirit. Lord, you did that so that we might have life as a son and a daughter. Just as we remember the manger, we also remember the cross. We remember that that's what saved us. And that also is a reflection of your great astonishing love. So as we come to this table, O oh Lord, might we remember all that you have provided. And therefore, as an outflow of that, we would strive for righteousness, not to try to gain righteousness, because we know we never can, but as a result of what you've done and who you are. And also, we would love remarkably that it would be a mesmerizing love. Of course, it's when it's difficult. But that's the road of the cross, and we remember that. That's the road of the manger. So we thank you, Father, for this table that points us to that end. We give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.